Have you read that open letter from the Ivy Grove surgery to their patients? A 16-page long letter, a reference document about how the practice may be struggling to meet current patient demand, which has doubled over the last year. I was thinking of basically just having the podcasters reading out that whole letter. But I figured most of us have read the one-page summary, which is a bit more digestible. I have read the full document. It makes some very valid points. I won't debate here about whether you think it's been done in the right or the wrong way. You can all you can all make your own minds up about that. But I think what is true is that many of their experiences are being echoed in practices up and down the country. We're all feeling the heat from increased demand and the new ways of working and the new technologies promised to help us just seem to be further driving the problem, not solving it. The reality for Ivy Grove is most of their patients will never read that letter. Those that do won't ever read the 16 pages and those who do are realistically not the reason that the practice may be struggling. So perhaps this is not so much for the patients. Maybe this is for the clinicians. Maybe this is that cathartic release. This is a cry for help. If one of your patients wrote a letter to you like this, you'd be seriously worried on their behalf. Unless, of course, it was perhaps one of your PD patients that always loves writing really long letters. But also, could this be, as Copperfield in Pulse neatly surmises, the longest general practice suicide note ever? It's Friday, the 7th of May. This is the Hot Topics Podcast. Hello and welcome everyone. Neil Tucker here from MB Medical. Thanks for joining us for the podcast once again. Beautiful sunny day out today. That's only if you're listening to this on Friday. If you're listening to this tomorrow on Saturday, it's going to be bucketing it down with rain and we're all going to be feeling gloomy. And things have felt a little bit gloomy over the past couple of weeks. Today, we're going to have a little think about how we're getting on in our practices, how we're feeling, how are we finding our new way of working and how do we see the future? Of course, we'll also have a little bit of research. So a new Cochrane paper on antidepressant and withdrawal effects, a BMJ paper on blood pressure and a Lancet paper on how to help people after stroke, which has virtually nothing to do with general practice, but really is pretty cool. So I'd be really interested to know just how you guys are getting on out there. How are you feeling? How are you getting on at the practice? How's the practice holding up? That letter from the Ivy Grove surgery, I think, is an indicator of something much more endemic. Last year was obviously really, really tough in and out of work. Our practice has completely changed the way that we do things, moving to largely remote consulting. And at least in England, all the signs are that this is the way that the powers that be would like to see things continue in the long term. How do you feel about the prospects of that? And demand continues to increase. I look back now to those heady days in early COVID where our local demand really tanked. And apart from the fear of imminent death at any point, things were actually pretty good. Now I feel there's a bit like a relentless slug through telephone calls, e-consults and emails, the end of which seems to get further and further away every single week. I would genuinely be interested to know how you are getting on around the UK and beyond. We get stuck in our bubbles, don't we, in our practices. It's hard to know if our experiences are indicative of others elsewhere. So get in touch. Let me know. Hot topics at mbmedical.com for the email. Um, Twitter at GP Hot Topics. Find us on Facebook too. Just search for MB Medical or Hot Topics. Let's share our experiences. 
one of my NB colleagues, Rob Walker, did a really good blog on remote consulting for the website uh, last week. It centred on a piece of research published in the BJGP very recently entitled Implementation of Remote Consulting in UK Primary Care Following the COVID-19 Pandemic, a Mixed Methods Longitudinal Study. So there was a quantitative component comparing the volume and type of consultations in April to July 2020 to the same period the year before 2019. But there was also a qualitative component with um, a large number of interviews of practice staff to help understand their experience of the changes. And this was a summary of the findings. So the pandemic had rapidly accelerated a move to remote consulting they found that the shift to remote consulting had some benefits but was driven by necessity and helped by low consultation volumes in March and April. Despite a drop in consultations overall, contact rates increased or stayed the same for patients who were older, shielding or had poor mental health. That in itself is an important point because those are some of the most vulnerable patients that we were desperately trying not to miss. So that's quite a welcome finding. But then they found as consultation rates returned to normal by July 2020, the patients began to consult with more complex problems. Um, GPs found remote management can be more time consuming, clinically challenging and less satisfying. And here we have one of the problems. I find consulting over the phone much less satisfying. Yesterday I was duty doctor in the practice. I had to get five patients down to actually physically see them face to face. Two of them even had pathology meriting admission to hospital. My afternoon started with a face-to-face postnatal and eight-week baby check. Actually, yesterday, by this point, I was flying high, but it was pretty much downhill from there. Just five more hours of relentless phone calls, online consultations and emails. I need to start setting myself an alarm so I remind myself to actually physically get out of my chair intermittently. I know what you're thinking. Isn't he taking Clexane like the rest of us? Of course I am on practice days. I've also got a full-time physio working on my neck and back to allow me to keep typing relentlessly for 12 hours. But at some point it would be nice to just stand up, stretch my legs and call someone in from the waiting room. And despite the research in the BJGP suggesting that vulnerable groups are still contacting us regularly and we're having regular contact with them, I'm just not convinced that remote consulting delivers the level of care that this group needs, particularly the elderly and frail populations. If you're now utilising online consultations, that clearly favours those who are tech savvy. It clearly disadvantages those with limited access to technology or limited ability to use technology, whether that's due to your age, your experience or your financial situation. And although it sounds obvious, if you create greater accessibility, then people will access services more greatly. Most people won't realise that their simple, quick question will quite easily take up 10 to 20 minutes of a clinician's time, let alone the time for the administrative staff as well. But people are asking more and more basic questions, and there's a whole range of reasons for this, which I dare say someone's doing some research on somewhere. But for me, two of the big issues is the changing nature of society. Families are now spread more disparately, so younger people lack the support and experience of their elders. And while I was always a huge advocate for people having as much access to information as possible, particularly about their health and medical care, I'm starting to wonder if we've reached a level where it's just driving pathology. 
medical information is often more heavily weighted towards serious rather than the more common uh, minor conditions, driving a lot of uncertainty in people, driving a lot of anxiety, and actually, I think, creating pathology as well, particularly mental health pathology. Which leads me on to the second piece of research today. So this is a Cochrane review. Its objectives were to assess the effectiveness and safety of approaches to discontinuation versus continuation of long-term antidepressant use for depressive and anxiety disorders in adults. If you've been on a Hot Topics course in the last year, then you'll know that we've been highlighting the research around discontinuation reactions after antidepressant use Almost half of patients will get them. They can often be severe and often prolonged. So there's a couple of questions here. One is what's the chance of getting discontinuation reactions, but also what's the chance of getting a true relapse and whether the manner in which you discontinue an antidepressant affects your chance of a relapse. Now, I would love to be able to tell you that I could give you a definitive recommendation on how to stop antidepressants. But the conclusion from this review was that we cannot make any firm conclusions about the effects or safety of the approaches studied to date because the quality of the evidence is so poor. The studies do not clearly distinguish between what may be a withdrawal reaction and what is a true relapse. And when they have looked at tapering, they've done it almost exclusively in less than four weeks. And of course, you and I know that often patients will need much longer than that. The NICE guidance recommends that patients may may need much longer than that. And in fact, there's the suggestion that for some people who've been on antidepressants in the long term, the withdrawal period should be extremely prolonged. So over one year and the dose reduction extremely gradual. So why am I even bothering to tell you about something that's so glaringly unhelpful for us? Well, it's because in the associated blog from the authors, one of them who is a GP just highlights that 8% of the total UK population is taking an antidepressant. Nearly half of them have been taking it for two or more years. Can it be that almost 2 million people of the population have a long-term mood disorder where medication is the solution? Are patients and clinicians complicit in pathologizing normal human emotion? Being a GP is a really bizarre thing because as I gain more and more experience, I become less and less certain about almost everything I do. And I think this could go either way. In many, many years' time, I wonder if we'll look back and think, what on earth were we doing with all those mind-altering drugs? But on the other hand, we may well just all be on mind-altering drugs all of the time, wondering why we were fighting it and worrying about it so much. It's a really complex situation. I don't have all the answers. And it's also true for all my moaning. I don't want to go back to the days where we had 15 patients in a morning surgery, half a dozen of which are staring at you with an irritated look in their eyes because you're running an hour behind. As we further adapt how we work, we're going to have to find the balance. That balance may be different for all of us. It may be different for practices. But one thing is for sure, we, the clinicians and the practices, need to be the one leading that and making those decisions. Now, next we have a new large systematic review on blood pressure and blood pressure reduction. I think I said earlier this was in the BMJ. Actually, it's in last week's Lancet. As ever, the links will be in the description. This was a meta-analysis of blood pressure lowering versus placebo, which also included the intensity of blood pressure lowering. 48 studies with at least 1,000 person years follow up in each. 
average blood pressures are 146 over 84. And if you've never had a cardiac event before, your chance of having one in the four years of follow-up that most of the studies had on average was 32 per thousand patient years. It's quite a lot of years, isn't it? Given that most humans these days might imagine themselves living to 100, I wonder why researchers don't use that denomination instead. Would it make it easier to understand in the real world? Is it applicable? Researchers, please email me and explain why. Thank you. I'm sure there's a very good reason. Anyway, the main finding to this study is that for every 5 millimetre of mercury reduction in systolic blood pressure, your cardiovascular risk reduced by 10%. That is much easier figures that we can work with and something very clear that we can communicate to patients. In itself, this knowledge doesn't sound particularly new, but they also highlighted that that reduction in cardiovascular risk is also true for people who have a normal blood pressure at baseline if you then give them antihypertensives. This raises the possibility of reducing someone's cardiac risk with hypertensives, even if their blood pressure is normal. So as well as encouraging them with diet and exercise and sticking them on a statin, you could still bung them a bit of amlodipine or ramipril and they may have less heart attacks, strokes and live a little bit longer. Of course, the important thing is how you sell it to patients. Let's not get too fixated on blood pressure lowering. Let's focus on the fact that this will benefit your cardiac risk. I wonder if the implication from this is that people who have particularly high cardiovascular risk, like someone who has maybe familial hypercholesterolemia, may well end up benefiting not just from cholesterol-lowering treatments, but from antihypertensive therapy as well, even when they're normotensive. For this group, maybe the future is more, not less. And sticking with a cardiovascular theme, we are onto our last piece of research today, and this is another paper in The Lancet. And if you're a long-time listener to this podcast, you might remember when we used to do future medicine. Well, this paper, even though it's real medicine right now, is very much in the realms of future medicine. So it's not something we're going to see in general practice anytime soon, but it's something that specialist hospitals may start adopting and might be really, really helpful for some of our patients. And those are the patients that unfortunately have a stroke. So as the paper suggests, uh, about 80% of people who have an acute stroke have upper limb involvement. Around half or more of those survivors will have persistent impairment of their upper limb function six months or uh, six months later or even longer. This is problematic for patients for obvious reasons. The problem that we've had is that once we've done the acute treatment for stroke, hopefully they've made big improvements there, but whatever's left is what's left. After that, no drug therapy that we've got has been effective. There is some improvement by doing physiotherapy. And specifically, constraint-induced movements therapy has been shown to improve measures in upper limb impairment and function in some patients who have had a stroke. And it's thought this is possibly through the patient basically relearning how to use the intact motor pathways. Now's the bit where it gets clever. So it may be possible to enhance the reorganization potential of the brain Um, following a stroke via cholinergic and monoaminergic modulation of motor cortex neurons. And this can be done by stimulation of the vagus nerve. So in rodent studies, when they've paired vagus nervous stimulation alongside sensory input or motor training, then they've demonstrated that that can improve reorganization of the rat corticoneurons. 
In fact, it tripled connectivity compared with movement training alone in one study. Fast forward to doing this in humans. And so this paper was a randomized, triple-blind, sham-controlled study in the UK and the US of patients with moderate to severe arm weakness at least nine months after an ischemic stroke, randomized to either rehabilitation with active vagus nerve stimulation or rehabilitation paired with sham uh, stimulation. At 90-day follow-up, the vagus nerve stimulation group had twice the rate of clinically meaningful upper limb movement improvement compared with the control group. So that was almost half of the stimulation group had improvement versus just about a quarter in the control group. It's a fantastic improvement in a group faced with long-term disability. Downsides? Well, you do have to have a procedure. So stimulating your vagus nerve is not just about deep breathing or being drowned in a bucket of ice water. And I'll admit, the procedure does not sound great, although I'm sure the experts do know what they're doing. You have a horizontal incision at the level of your cricoid cartilage in your neck. You identify the vagus nerve and then you physically attach a stimulation lead to it and then the lead is tunneled down through the rest of the neck and it's attached to the pulse generator device which sits in your pectoral region just like a pacemaker would. Incredibly the only serious adverse event was actually in the control group which must be a bit of a downer for them and they had vocal cord paresis which is not ideal. On the other hand if that was the one complication in 108 implanted devices, and that's pretty impressive, especially considering the very positive outcomes of the procedure. It's definitely getting harder for us to work out what those little boxes stuck in people's chests are actually doing. Okay, that's enough from me. So lots coming up from MB Medical over the next few weeks. We've got our urgent care course this Saturday. We've got a free Hot Topics clinic on Tuesday evening with Kate Digby. And we've got another Hot Topics course on Thursday, the 20th of May. I think I'm doing that one. Come and join us for that. Remember, you can catch up on demand with all of these if you need to. And as ever, you can get in touch. So email us hottopics at mbmedical.com. Find us on Twitter at GP Hot Topics and Facebook too. And I hope you all have a lovely, lovely weekend. Bye bye.